Yesterday was an interesting day. And I say that because I didn't intend to do a two-show night. But it was very interesting because you have Katherine Hepburn, who was born on May 12, 1907. And then decades later, you have George Carlin, who was born on May 12, 1937. Interesting how the numbers kind of go in there. Two different characters... George Carlin had that dream to become a movie star, and, he, and it was recognized later on in his life. By that point, he was already the king of stand-up comedy, him and Richard Pryor. This linguist who just had this, this talent for making words jump at you. The seven words you can't say on TV. And then Catherine Hepburn, who had that voice. A long, illustrious career. There's so much to be said about Katherine Hepburn. There's so many misconceptions. What bothers me is there are also misconceptions about her personal life, which I don't think is any of our business. And these tell-alls. I think if if an artist wants to tell their story, like Rob Halfred of Judas Priest, that was such a profound story where he embraced his truth and that's what I like that 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 is where talk confessing your your secrets and confessing how you felt at that moment in time is interesting but with someone like Katherine Hepburn who was very guarded I mean if you remember the Catherine or the Barbara Walters interview where she was playing with her and she's like she says do you have a skirt I have one I'll wear it to your funeral what kind of a twee would you like to be? Oh, everyone would like to be an oak tree. I just hope I'm not an, an elm tree with Dutch elms disease. Oh, yeah. Catherine Houghton Hepburn. I love her films. I still watch them today. As I said last night, I love The Lion in Winter. The Lion in Winter basically is a play on film. And then she did those movies in the 90s, remember? She would do the TV movies. She did a movie with Nick Nolte, The Man Upstairs. Yeah. I mean, who's who's more crotchety in that? Her or Nick Nolte? <laughs> uh, and then George Carlin. My cousin met George Carlin. In fact, I think he'll be happy to know that today, while on my lunch break, I ordered George Carlin's all of my stuff his hbo series collection and i'm gonna watch it and i've got a lot to watch now i've got the marlena dietrich one which i keep hoping to watch i'm also watching bosch my brother recommended bosch it's very interesting on amazon prime and so this is this is may you know may 13th the 13th a lot's going on watching films is an experience. I talk about that because we are colored by these experiences and things are slowly opening back up here in the US. I want to give a shout out to my friends in Canada whom I love and just admire so much. They are the LNC and things are not opening up over there and I feel for them things have not been handled as they should be and when it comes to the vaccine and 
they're, they're, I, my heart goes out to them. As I have said before, if I had the power, I'd have you all over here and call my cousin up and say, hey, let's get them taken care of right here. They deserve it. <laughs> we live in a very crazy world. Who would have thought that a year ago, I, I think many of us thought this would be done by the summer of 2020. 2020. And it wasn't. So um, I, I remember the last time I saw a movie in the movie theater, which was 1917. Or the last time I went to a live concert, which was Tool. Or the last time I saw certain people. The last time we had a big family gathering, which was uh, one of the kids' birthdays in February, before everything just went to shit. And so movies are coming back. Concerts are coming back. I'm going to go see, uh, I almost said Tool. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> Deftones and Gojara and Poppy in September at the uh, Bill Graham Theater in uh, San Francisco. And then Venom. Venom is coming back. I'm, yes, obvious, whatever. Tom Hardy, though, is Venom. And then you've got Andy Serkis. Remember Gollum? The precious Gollum, Gollum. He's directing it. So it's carnage. And then you've got Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson? Who would have thought Woody Harrelson from Cheers, where everybody knows your name, would be this amazing film star? He played Larry Flint. He was in three billboards out of fucking Emmy, Missouri. I hated that movie. He was good in it, though. He was in Indecent Proposal. Woo! That movie. Ooh, that movie. I remember, I, I don't remember watching all of it because I was still a teenager. Those, those were the days when you weren't allowed to watch certain movies. And then you did. But I remember when I graduated from high school, 1990. 1999 was such an interesting year where I was finally... High school had ended, and I was that was like one walk out of hell. Out of a meatloaf video. I love meatloaf. I don't love his politics, but I love meatloaf. And I watched all kinds of films. Judy Dench and Mrs. Brown. I remember I fell asleep during some of it because I was so tired that day. And my cousins and brothers walked in while I was watching it while I was asleep and said they saw a bunch of naked hippies. It's like, no, that's just Billy Connolly and Gerard, Gerard Butler before he was famous running, saying, my heart's in the highlands. Yeah. They were watching a Halloween marathon. Or was it was it Halloween or was it? No, it was Freddy Cougar. They would do crazy shit and watch all those Freddy Cougar movies all at once. And I was like, this is boring. Or the Halloween movies all at once. The season of the witch. More like the season of the you know what. <sighs> they were binging movies before people were binging TV shows. I just can't do that. I don't have that in me. I don't want to go through that. That's why I talk about these films. I talk about films daily. Sometimes I talk about music. I, I want to just put this, this out there that I love the band Gojara. And I was wearing a Tool shirt last weekend. And I went up to Amador County, which has is this little town called Sutter Creek. 
And then I went to Jackson, which is the main town in Amador County. And I went antiquing because I was looking for depression glass for my mother. Depression glasses from the 1930s. And I didn't really find much, but I bought some incense and I was very happy about that. Then uh, I was going to go in this shop that has music boxes and I didn't go. And I noticed um, the gentleman who owns it was outside sitting down and he says, I love your shirt. And I said, yeah, the best band. And he says, my daughter would agree with you. And then I said, well, you know, there's a band out of France that is almost like Tool and Meshuggah put together. Or, and they're called Gorgara. And he said, really? I said, yeah, you wouldn't think of a metal band that comes out of France. Because a lot of other types of music come out of France. And he says, I'll check them out. So that's the power of what a t-shirt can do. And, I'm, and I have so many tool t-shirts and people like to tease me about that. And yeah. <laughs> it's like they're thinking, is that the only band t-shirt that you have? Because I do love my, my band tees. I really do. I don't just wear them. I wear them because I love the band and I believe in the band. I believe in the music. I just got to. Go, uh, Baby Yoda t-shirt I almost said his real name I almost said his real name I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen The Mandalorian But please watch it <laughs> Don't worry I won't ever reveal The Mandalorian or Baby Yoda's real name on here Because I know People listen Some people just don't have time to get into it And I understand that <sighs> Film What would we be without film? Film was the it was the defining uh, art it, it was the art form of the 20th century you have to understand the 20 the first art of the 20th century was about music and art and then film came along and film literally defined the 20th century you think of all the movie stars hollywood the first movie stars you got Mary Pickford, who's from Canada. You have Charlie Chaplin, who was from England. And then you have Buster Keaton, who's from the U.S. Think of everything within that and how amazing it is that the film that came out of the 20th century. Yeah, it is amazing. It is awesome. The other day, someone was talking smack about Betty Davis, and I believe it was on a film site. Yeah, they said, Betty was never a big star that troubled her. That's why she smoked like a fiend, four packs of unfiltered Chesterfields daily. And I said, Betty was an icon. And is a very big star. She's been dead 32 years and we're still talking about her. And it's unfortunate that they don't think that Betty Davis. For me, Betty Davis was a bigger star than Joan Crawford. And I'm not taking sides right there. Just understand that. Also, the AFI put Betty Davis number two behind Katherine Hepburn. So come on. Come on. That's why I love these films. I love that we live in a world where a director 
can talk about his love of horror films. And his first language is Spanish. And what it, how universal film is. Guillermo del Toro. As you know, I am half Mexican and I have to roll the R. So Guillermo del Toro, who did Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water. And the language of film for Guillermo del Toro. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful that Guillermo del Toro and Salma Hayek and uh, Alfonso Caron, that universal language of film. It, it is it is powerful. It's powerful. And I I love his uh I love his take on film. I love his take on the the power of cinema. Here we go. If I, here's 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 Guillermo del Toro at the Bleak House. Hi, I'm Guillermo del Toro, and uh, I welcome you to the Chronos Device Extras. Uh, we thought we would include an extra that has never been seen. Uh, Chronos being my first movie is kind of a, an exploded view of my brain, and uh, uh, it shows everything that is in it. And the perfect way to illustrate a little bit more of uh, what is in it is to show you my house, my what I call my man cave or bleak house. That is where I started finally collecting uh, all the articles, toys, books that I've accumulated over 40 years or more of collecting. This house uh, contains uh, every book I've ever read uh, and most every toy I've ever bought. It contains from my first book and my first toy all the way to now and uh, props and uh, objects from movies, both my own and other people's, that I've been collecting over the years. The house is organized in libraries, and thus the first library is this one, which is Horror and the Occult. In it, uh, I have all kinds of books, from paperbacks, pulp paperbacks, to uh, old 17th century, 18th century, and 19th century original treatises uh, on vampirism, occultism, witchcraft, magic, so on and so forth. And it's full of rare objects and paintings. The house uh, is entirely covered by original art, pre-production art from movies, comic book pages, and so on and so forth. For example, this little guy here is the first book I bought. Uh, I bought it in 1971. I was uh, seven years old. And uh, it was edited, it's the best horror stories, and it's edited by Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a spiritual mentor and a really important figure in my life. Uh, I patterned uh, this uh, house, the Bleak House, after him and his famous Acker Mansion, which was in Los Angeles, in the Los Feliz areas, filling it with paintings, toys, and uh, strange objects. I'll show you a little bit more around. Unfortunately for me, and fortunately for you, I cannot show you the whole of uh, Bleak House, because we are building a, a new room that is... Uh, going to contain what I call a rain room. It's going to contain a, another of the libraries and it's going to be a room where it's going to be raining all day long. This is the art room 
which is uh, essentially contains all the art books, including an almost complete run of the studio magazine published in the 1890s in London that shaped what we think about modern concepts of art. Uh, the color of the walls was stolen by me uh, from the paint uh, patterns in John Sloan's house in London. Throughout the house, we had peppered uh, different automatons, act, uh, mobile toys and maquettes. Uh, we have whistling automatons, violin playing automatons and uh, oracles and so forth. My favorites are by an artist in LA called Thomas Kunt. Now Thomas creates these automatons the old fashioned way. They are entirely clockwork and because of that they have to recur to the ingenuity of centuries past. And they have the same patterns and plans and blueprints than the greatest uh, automaton creators uh, did in the past. Uh, Thomas has created these things from scratch and there are several scattered throughout Bleak House. Bleak House uh, was born uh, one fateful evening when I was I was already occupying three quarters of the family home and my wife grew despondent because I was hanging a picture of a lustful corpse by Richard Corbin right next to the kitchen and she she essentially asked uh, for clemency for the girls who are 9 and 14 not to be exposed to such fantastical creations and I realized that it was uh, an act of emancipation and a gift of freedom to remove all the collection of strange crap, this uh, very odd modern cabinet of curiosities away from the family home and to take it somewhere else where I could enjoy it and work in it along with the crew of people that I work in designing movies and so forth and uh, thus the man cave was found. Much like the antiquarian shop in Kronos, the Jesus Gris shop, the house is full of all types of trinkets. Originals by Edward Gorey, Arthur Rackham, uh, books from the 18th, 19th century, automatons and so forth. But you can also find all kinds of trinkets. You can find uh, pest dispensers, uh, vinyl models, vinyl toys from Japan and otherwise. And in this uh, shelf, I have all the painted and unpainted models that I uh, collected of Harryhausen over the years and other monsters. And that little guy back there, that Pirates of the Caribbean model, is the first model I painted as a kid at age seven or eight. This bookshelf has my favorite authors, uh, Borges, Mark Twain, Victor Hugo, Carson McCullers, Truman Capote, and mainly Dickens. So it is through Dickens that we access the secret library, which is dedicated to fairy tales, folklore, and mythology. This library was modeled after the haunted mansion at Disneyland and all the art on the walls is a, a reminder of that. It also has original paintings by Mark Davis and uh, the original wallpaper uh, that was provided to us by the same company that provided the wallpaper in the foyer of the original haunted mansion, the Bradbury Company. You can see the gargoyles from the elevator are here too. And this is mainly a great room in which to uh, read and investigate and do some research. So it's a perfect room to make notes on future films and so forth. And this is also a perfect room to do a model painting. Uh, and as I showed you outside in the shelves, you have the first model I painted as a kid, all the way to the last model I painted in Wellington during the pre-production of The Hobbit, which is this little model of Winslow Leach of Phantom of the Paradise, one of my favorite movies. There's plenty of toys and uh, collectible masks of that movie in the house. 
In this room, in the shelves, you can find first editions of the colored fairy tale books of Andrew Lang, and first editions of uh, The Wizard of Oz, and all 14 books of L. Frank Baum, and many of the Victorian gift books that were illustrated by Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, uh, John Tenniel, and so forth. And the beauty of these books is not uh, the collectible value of them. It is really that when you open them and you read them, you can evoke accurately and perfectly the feeling of reading, the feeling of wonder you had reading them as a kid. Since the house was modeled after the curiosity cabinets in old Europe that were meant to entertain, thrill, and educate, you will find pepper through the house uh, very strange marine biology specimens, Fiji mermaids, um, octopuses' tentacles, uh, skeletons and skulls, complete uh, specimens of strange birds and malformed children, and uh, even replicas, exact replicas, both clockwork and steam, of large machines in the real world. Another of the inspirations for the Bleak House, for the Man Cave, was the original research library at Disney Studios. And the philosophy that when you create a group of extraordinary artists, you should definitely feed their imagination with all sorts of images. We have uh, in the house uh, some frames from Gertie the Dinosaur by Winsor McKay, pre-production art by Ivan Durrell, Sleeping Beauty, Fantasia, that surrounds the artist. But the idea is to create an environment that allows them to be stimulated not just by what is uh, called uh, uh, high art or fine art, but by even the powerful images that come from toys or pop art or, uh, you know, vivid imaginations. So everything in the house, for me, has the equal importance. Whether it's a rubber toy or an anatomical model, whatever it is, it's here to try and provoke sort of a shock to the system and get circulating the lifeblood of imagination, which I think is curiosity. When we lose curiosity, I think we lose entirely inventiveness and we start becoming old. So the man cave or bleak house was designed to be sort of a compression chamber where we can create a stimulating environment uh, surrounding the artist with uh, thousands of magazines, books, and in this case, in this, which is the screening room, 7,000 DVDs, uh, hundreds of Laserdisc, Betamaxes, VHSs, and the walls full of art by people that we all admire, be it Ivan Durrell or uh, Nightmare Before Christmas pre-production art, Kay Nielsen, Bill Titla, uh, Basil Gogos, etc. Uh, so you see, this house grew out of the fact that we could not hang one painting in a kitchen, and we ended creating a house that is perhaps not suitable for everyone, but it's perfectly suitable for me. As a strange animal, this is my terrarium, and I promise you, further excursions to the nether regions of the man cave bleak house in the future i hope you enjoyed it and that is bleak house guillermo del toro my goodness what what an extraordinary filmmaker an extraordinary mind there aren't a lot of minds like guillermo del toro and i thought it was important to highlight that in turn i mean he did the shape of water he did hellboy Bonds Labyrinth. Here we go. Here's Guillermo talking about directing. I think magical realism is a classification that comes from outside the phenomena. And every time we school something, 
were kind of lying to understand it. We're pigeonholing it. And we group uh, some of the Latin American boom in the same package, but they're so different. Some of them are so European. So to me, it's not so much a literary school as having born in the place you were born. I'll explain that simply. You are what you are, and that's what you bring to to the movies you make. It doesn't. All we can do as artists is the synthesis of something that has been done before. We're 2,000 years in, at least, in civilization. Every song has been sung, every story has been told, but your voice hasn't been heard. Your voice is yet to be heard. And in that, I package two things that are one and the same, your qualities and your defects. And as a Latin American, the way I live it, uh, we could be having dinner, and somebody says, I saw a ghost, and they say, oh, yeah, pass the bread. You know, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, I saw a ghost. Sure you did. My grandmother came to visit me last night and told me a secret from heaven. Sure. Where's the salsa? Magic and realism in Mexico, same thing. Same thing. Brilliant. That's why Buñuel went to Mexico and said this is the most surreal country in the world. Because it's absolutely true. And that's why uh, what an European would qualify as an absurdist thing is what is natural to me. You take the things that are more extraordinary and you root them in the ordinary. The conflation of those two things. And if you uh, come from a European or Anglo-Saxon point of view, these things are different tonally. But for a Mexican, it's second nature. You know, we are altar makers. You give me five genres and I'll organize them in a certain shape and I'll make a little altar. Crazy. It's going to have a, you know, like magpies. We find a shiny object and accommodate next to a less shiny object and we construct things. And that's synthesis, by the way. That's what is new. Nobody has organized those shiny bits the way you do it. And that is Guillermo del Toro talking to the AFI. And I thought I would highlight that in terms of the curiosity of a filmmaker. You will never be old as an artist or a filmmaker or a musician if you don't, if you don't lose that curiosity and maintain it, which Guillermo del Toro has been able to do and the freedom of it. And he's made some great films. And the pride that he has... And, and maintaining the culture and talking about the culture. I've always talked about Salma Hayek, not just the fact that she's beautiful, but she never changed her accent. People told her to. She kept it because that's who she is. That's the beauty of filmmaking. It is universal. It is universal that I can watch a film that is made in Swedish, The Seventh Seal, and absolutely love it. Thank goodness for the subtitles. I remember years ago trying to watch, 20 years ago, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And it was dubbed and I couldn't watch it. And I should have watched the original version, which has the subtitles. Anytime you dub something, it just takes the piss out of it. I remember years ago watching La Femme Nakita in French. And the subtitles. And the way the story was told, it was beautiful. A lot of people... When I when you tell them to watch a film and it's an international film and it's in subtitles, they think you're a film snob, and you're not. Film is a language. It is, it is universal. We all talk in film. We just all talk in a different language. 
whether it be Akiro, uh, how do you say his name? Akiro Kurosawa, the famous Japanese director, or Bernardo Bertolucci, the famous Italian director, or uh, Igmar Bergman. I mean, come on, Martin Scorsese, John Cassavetes. Film is a language that is universal. And so I wanted I'm going to watch some more Guillermo del Toro films because first of all he is fascinating to watch him talk about his love of film. I don't think there is really many people around today who have that passion and curiosity as Guillermo del Toro. And so I I uh, intriguing. So we'll dive more into that. Unpleasant dreams.